0: Welcome here if if you're new um, and we haven't met yet. My name's Dave. I'm one of our pastors here at Summit. Uh, you know, a couple weeks ago we were having a small group over at our friend Grant and Janelle's place, and we didn't have a babysitter lined up. See, we usually do dinner and then we and our and our kids eat with us and then they go downstairs, but we didn't get a babysitter. We thought, no big deal, we thought. The kids will be fine on their own, we thought. Uh, not too much later, after this sort of period of surprising and suspicious um, quiet from downstairs. Our four-year-old son, Connor, comes upstairs and, bless his heart, he tells us, everyone is coloring on the walls downstairs. And I was doing it too. Of <laughs> course, good parents as we were, with hidden laughter, um, we got out our cameras, of course. And uh, it's like a... A mini mug shot. Uh, And good parents as we were, we got out some rags and said, you made the mess, get to cleaning it up. (laughs) So, there they go. (laughs) What was amazing, of course, is that they had almost as much fun cleaning it up as they did making it. Well, that might be a bit of a stretch, but... um, You know, Connor, our, our son, at some point in making this mess, he realized, this isn't right. Or at least he realized our parents are going to come downstairs soon enough and they'll see the mess we made. And so he decides, better confess it now and bring it to light. So so why did Connor do that? Well, I think he knows that it's better to confess and bring it to light and things generally go better for him in that scenario. And that's true. But more than that too, Connor was looking ahead to the future. He knew that we, his parents would eventually see what was going on. Connor's vision of the future, you see, shaped his decision to get things into the light in the present. Um, And that's not just true of our kids making a mess on the wall, cute as that is. Um, That's true for all of us. How we envision the future shapes how we're going to live in the present. What we see on the horizon, our, our hope or sense of hopelessness will deeply influence how we live in the presence. You know, we've been looking at the the little letter, 1 Thessalonians, uh, over the past few months, and we see here how Paul writes to this group of new believers to give them a more accurate vision of the future. He offers the hope of God's good future. Uh, Paul tells of God's graciousness toward all those who turn to him in faith. He reminds these new believers that they are deeply loved by God, and he takes great care to explain to the church that there is a hopeful day that is dawning. Those elements of faith, love, and hope, read that little letter again, they give it its beat. The rhythm of this letter comes from those, that triad of faith, hope, and love. That's the impulse that you see interplaying all throughout this letter, God's deep love God's hopeful future and our trust in the God of love. The God that we are called now to turn his love outward into the world. So this morning we're going to we're begin to dig into the final instructions that Paul has for this young church. These are the practical implications of what it means. He's calling them to be a community of hope. And God is calling us too to be a community of hope of hope. But how does does God do this? What resources does God give to make us that? Well, let's, let's look at this text together. We're in 1 Thessalonians 5, starting from verse 12 to 15. He says, Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Now, as you can imagine... Uh, it's always slightly awkward preaching on a text like this, you know, when you're a part of the leadership team. Um, you can see the awkwardness, right? But we need to remember that uh, the whole community uh, of the Thessalonians is hearing these words. Paul is speaking to the leaders as well as he's speaking to the rest of the community. So what are the leaders hearing in this? It reminds me, as a leader, as I read this, that ministry, that the the, the leadership element of, of of the church, that's going to mean hard work. Leaders, Paul says, care for you in the Lord. Leaders work hard partly because there are so many needs to be cared for. But in particular, the sort of work can simply be hard. It means attentiveness and patience. It often means entering into the deep brokenness and hurt with people, and not in a cold, distant, sort of professionalized sense, but as a brother or sister in Christ. And so you see, heart work is actually very hard work, yet it brings incredible joy, too. We get to join in Jesus' healing ministry. So as someone who gets to um, work in a vocational sense of ministry, I'm so blessed to be able to do the hard work of heart work. But there's more than that. Look what Paul says next. Um... He said, leaders are called to admonish you. Of course, that's a word that we use every day, right? (laughs) Um, The Greek word Paul uses uh, here can also be translated instruct you, but with a sort of an element of warning, too. It can also be translated to warn you. Giving instruction, Paul says, providing teaching that's truthful, that accurately represents God in his ways, and that's timely, that connects life in the here and now with what God has always been saying and doing, that requires, well, thought and prayer and preparation, reading and discerning, listening, more prayer, more reading, wrestling with ideas, wrestling with the text of the Bible, wrestling actually with God himself. Why? To strengthen and encourage and build up, really to equip the whole people of God, every person who's a part of the church, to equip us for ministry, to empower God's people to join in God's mission. This is the hard work of head work, we might say, in Christian leadership. But what instructions does Paul give to the community? Here's what they need to do. He says this, hold these folks in the highest regard and love because of their work. This means, in part, respecting their leadership, you know, being a team player. Leadership requires followership, you might say. And Paul wanted this church to thrive, and that was only going to happen if the church is supporting the leadership that had been called and put in place there. But notice that little phrase, in love. Boy, that reminds us the life of the church is a life in relationship. Jim White, of course you've met him, because he said hi to everybody, I'm sure. He understands this deeply. Thank you, Jim, for weekly sending me reminders of what God is doing in our midst in connection with others. That's what Jim does, and he reminds us, and as this text reminds us, that that the church is about relationship, and so is Christian leadership. And Paul wants to make sure That the way that the church relates, leaders, the rest of the congregation, that it's mutual. It's not a one-way street. This is in love. And one of the great joys of being on staff here at Summit Drive is that this is happening all the time. There is a reciprocation of love between the leadership and the rest of the the church. It isn't a one-way street here, and I'm thankful for that. Like the Thessalonian church, God is forming us into a community of hope. And leadership has a role to play in that formation. That's what Paul's saying here, I think. But it's not the only resource. Notice what Paul does next. Actually, notice mostly what he doesn't do. He doesn't set up a scenario where there's sort of professional clergy on one side, and they're the ones who do ministry, and on the other side is a group of religious consumers who sort of passively receive the ministry. Unfortunately, it's easy for us to slide into consumeristic ways of viewing the church. The church can be viewed as a a consumer sort of market, not as God's people on mission, just a provider of religious goods and services. But you see in the New Testament, there's only spoken of one people of God, not clergy who do the ministry, (laughs) professional ministers on one side, and then passive lay people on another. No, there's only one people of God. All are responsible for the ministry of the gospel. And then there's leaders among the people of God. That's how the New Testament frames uh, Christian leadership. So yes, Christian leaders have a role to play, to care and to teach. But notice here, everyone is responsible to everyone else. Look at verses 14 to 15. Live at peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure no one pays back wrong for wrong. But always strive to do what is good for each other and everyone else. Who is doing this ministry? Everyone. That's a part of the church is living out these commands. And these are ministry things. Isn't that a beautiful picture, though? It's a a community living in peace, meaning close relationship with one another. It's a community that spurs each other on to put aside laziness and any sort of disruptive behavior and instead get on with the work of encouraging, of healing, of doing good for each other and the whole of the rest of the world. And notice, it's not farmed out to the professionals. This is simply the church being the church. As we heard a few weeks ago, Pastor Jordan was preaching from 1 Thessalonians 4, and in verse 11, it says God's people aren't to be sort of busy bodies, just being gossips, but to be busy with their hands. Why? To win the respect of outsiders. You see, the mission that God is calling us to join in is to make his love and grace known to everyone. And God is forming us into the sort of people who, in the way that we live, the way we interact with each other, what we do with our work and our words, we are to be a picture, like a signpost on the side of the highway, pointing out, this is what God's coming kingdom will look like. This sort of people who live at peace, who encourage one another, we are to be a signpost on the highway, a community of hope that points others in that direction. Um, the missionary and um, theologian Leslie Newbegin, I quote him all the time, uh, but he puts it something like this in his book, The Gospel in Plural Pluralist Society. He says the only way that our neighbors will be able to take seriously the truthfulness of the gospel, you know, the good news that in Jesus, God is making all things new. That the God of love offers us forgiveness and hope for a future with him. The only way our co-workers, our, our neighbors, our classmates will ever take that seriously is if they see it lived out in a community who believes it. That's it. There's, there's no way that the truthfulness of the gospel will ever be believed if people can't see it being lived. And that's how the early church basically won the whole of the ancient world to Christ was living, gospel-shaped, formed community out in the presence of others and doing it without fear. That's what Paul is calling us to here, to let the good news so shape our life together in the ordinary stuff that when people look at us, they see that's a signpost of the kingdom. That's what God is up to. So if the gospel, the good news is to shape us, what's central to the gospel? Well, this is God's love is central. And his mission to renew all things. We're a people of hope because we're looking beyond and saying God is doing something. He's bringing all of creation to its good and perfect fulfillment. He will judge evil and sin and be rid of it. And those who want to be a part of his new future will be. And a congregation who believes that, boy, we're going to be secure in God's love for us. And we're going to be looking forward with resolve to the hopeful day when God remakes all things. A congregation that believes that will demonstrate God's love for the world. Because we trust in God's good future, we will be fearless in hope in the present. We don't need to fear a thing, not a single thing, not death, nothing. Because we know where our future is going. Second aspect we need to ask, how does God demonstrate this love that we're talking about? Romans 5:8. you probably have memorized it. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners over here, not pursuing him, not looking for him, Christ died for us. God's son gives up his life to make us his, not while we were pursuing him, but while we were running away from him. And not only that, his life is raised back up to show that he has defeated evil and death, and it's a a sign that the new creation has already dawned. It's coming, and we get to be a part of it. See, a congregation that believes that will be filled with utter humility because we know we're only made right because of God's grace toward us. We didn't pursue God. He pursued us. This presses any sense of superiority right out of our hearts. The entrance into God's community, the church, requires its members to say, boy, I've messed things up. God, I need your grace. When I try to do life on my own terms, I am working against you and what you created me for. See, a Christian is, though, is, is one who confesses, I need you, God. I need your forgiveness. I need your renewing redeeming work in me so you see faith in God's work through Jesus that's central to the gospel but there's a third thing we have to say that's central to the gospel God loves us as we are but he will not leave us like that a congregation that believes the gospel knows that God intends to do nothing less than make us as Paul says in second Corinthians five seventeen, new creations God is not interested in making a better you. Do you know that? Any any book that tells you on on the shelf, even if it's near the Christian section, that says, become a better you, forget it. God is transforming you. He's going to make you something completely different. C.S. Lewis says it like this in Mere Christianity. Mere improvement is not redemption. Though redemption always improves people, even here and now, and will, in the end improve them to a degree that we can't even imagine yet, God became a man to turn creatures into sons and daughters. Not simply to produce better men and women of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. And then he gives us this really beautiful word picture. It's not like teaching a horse to jump better and better, but like turning a horse into a winged creature. Of course, once it has wings, it will soar over fences, which could never have been jumped and thus beat the natural horse at its own game. But there may be a period while the wings are just beginning to grow when it cannot do so. And at that stage, the the lumps on the shoulders, no one can tell by looking at them that they're going to be wings. It may even give it an awkward. As a congregation that believes the gospel, knows that God is transforming us, not just merely improving us. And he's calling us now to grow into what we already are, God's very own sons and daughters. It's gospel-shaped living, fueled by the Holy Spirit. That's what enables us to actually live out these instructions. Think of it. What Paul means by peace, here's it, it's complete harmony beautifully cohesive community. To live at peace with others, you know, to be respectful and help those who actually need to hear a warning or need support, frankly, that kind of life is impossible if you think you're superior to others. Or if you're living out of a place of insecurity, if you don't know deep down that how loved you are by God. See, when we're slighted, we'll either be disgusted with the other and say, oh man, I can't believe she did that. I would never have done that. Don't be so sure. Or on the other hand, if we don't believe God's love for us, if we live in insecurity, when we're slighted, instead of extending grace and forgiveness, we'll grow bitter and cold. If we haven't had our hearts melted by God's grace and love toward us, what are the chances we'll be able to extend grace and love to others? So you see, the only way that we can be be patient with everyone, as the text says, to bear with the faults and even the harm that others inflict on us, to not give in to a retaliation mindset of paying back wrong for wrongs, the only way we can do that is as we trust in and follow the one who did it perfectly. Leon Morris, one of the... Great biblical scholars of the last century, he puts it like this. Our master for our salvation endured patiently the insults and injuries of wicked man. He, the just, died for the unjust. In both these ways, his example is important for his people. We must expect to be called upon to show the same kind of patience under provocation. We shouldn't think for a second that... Jesus making our forgiveness possible was easy. The night that Jesus, before Jesus went to his death, he prayed. The text says, with with sweat that was like drops of blood. Father, if there's any other way for this to happen, if you can take this away from me, please do it. Yet not what I want, Father. I'll do what you want. Jesus gave up his comfort. More than that, actually. He surrendered his will to make our forgiveness possible. Why should we expect forgiveness to be easy or cheap for us? It's this story of Jesus' own self-giving, patient, enduring love that's at the center of God's work in the world. And if we are participants in that work, we will be called to live out of that same story, to give ourselves to the costly work of bearing with others, of not holding grudges against them, of forgiving. Now, as we think about the ways that others have slighted us, maybe, or or maybe much worse than that, have actively sought to hurt us, we might think, that all sounds nice, Dave, but it's a pipe dream. I could never, in fact, I will never let them go. I could never forgive what they've done to me. I can understand that feeling. I've actually wrestled with it, too. And you're right. We we can't live this way. But Jesus did live this way. Why? In order to make us, to transform us into the sort of people who can and who will. Through Christ, we are changed so that we can become like him. Do you believe that? That's the question this text puts to us. Do you believe that God gives you and I the power to do what he asks of us, the power to forgive. And not only forgiveness, he releases us to be a people of fearless, courageous compassion toward others, even in a world of fear. See, letting Jesus' self-giving love set the agenda, that means that we always strive, as Paul says. Isn't that awesome? I love that word, strive. It's straining. It's pushing ahead. And it's not just sometimes, it's always. He says, we must always strive to do good for each other and everyone else. And there's dozens of ways that we live this out on a weekly basis, isn't there? But one way that God has led us as a church to do good for everyone else is by sponsoring a refugee family. You know, we had a vote in here uh, just over a month ago, I think, um, and it was unanimous that this church said, yes, God is calling us to open our doors, to, to be a welcome to someone who's broken. And I couldn't stop the tears from coming. I was trying to be brave and like, tough and couldn't stop the tears from coming. Like our kids who drew on the walls downstairs, we as humans, all of us, are in some way a part of the mess that's in the world, whether we like to admit it or not. But just like our kids, we have found forgiveness and we get to be part of the cleanup too, to be part of the solution. Now, of course, this sponsorship is a costly endeavor. We need to raise something like $20,000. And we're actually shooting to raise 80% of that within the next couple of weeks because we can't even start the paperwork until we have that money in hand. So I want to encourage you to pray and consider how God is asking you to give. So that we can meet that goal. I mean, just think back a couple of months ago, maybe when those, you first, we first started to become aware of just how bad this situation was. We were seeing images of refugees desperately running from their lives. They were leaving everything behind. Their homes, their jobs. Many of them were leaving family members behind. Could you do that? To get on a boat that might sink? That's the level of desperation people are living in. And remember how you thought, I wish I could do something. This is it. This is the something. This is the something we can do together. And so, you see, the sooner we raise that money, the sooner a family that's in a refugee camp somewhere around the world or sleeping on the streets somewhere around the world will be able to find a home and find refuge so please, um, see the bulletin handout if you want more information. There's one in there. And then uh, Kezia and Justin and a few others will be back. There's a table set up. They can give you more information because it's not just money we need. We're actually, it's a year-long process of caring for people's, all their physical needs. We have to find them a place to live and furnish it and, and help them to uh, get a driver's license and all those bits and pieces in a, in a totally foreign environment to them. That's us. That's our work as a church. That's the good work we're being called to. So maybe you can't give a lot financially, but maybe you can give a lot in other ways. Please stop by the table and, and talk more about that. And, and my, my thought is, that what better way to spend our energies around Christmas? Because we remember the Christmas story is an interesting one, isn't it? You got this Middle Eastern family who are looking for a place to stay. And violence actually drives them out of Bethlehem. And they have to be, they're actually a refugee family down in Egypt. And have you ever wondered what they used the gold, frankincense, and myrrh for? A lot of scholars would say that was actually what supported them. That's what kept Jesus alive as a refugee in Egypt. And so now we get to, in some kind of interesting way, live out the Christmas story ourselves. We get to be the innkeeper who doesn't say, sorry, no room at the inn. But, well, well, yes, actually, there is room. We get to be like the wise men who bring costly gifts that will sustain the life of a family that's fleeing from violence. Merry Christmas, right? We together are called to this year-long process. It will be striving, always strive to do what's good. That's what we get to do. That's what our text is calling us to this morning. But now I know in the wake of Paris, and I say Paris and not Beirut or Baghdad or other places that were bombed, but Paris, it's because it's a Western nation. That's what disturbs so many people. That's what made us pay attention. In, in light of Paris, it would be easy for us to be reactionary, to adopt a fear-based way of thinking. Let's talk about that for a second. I can understand that there's concern about the vetting process of refugees, you know, ensuring that Canada isn't you know, introducing terrorists into our midst. I, I get that. But just so you know, the refugee family that we're sponsoring uh, is from the Blended Visa Office Referred Program, meaning they have already been, months ago, maybe years ago, vetted by the UN and the Canadian government through a very rigorous process. Whoever we're calling because of the program we're going through, that's the group that we're drawing from, if that mattered to you. I don't know if it does, but that's how this process is being worked out. But here's my concern, even as we think about the safety issues, It's about what fear can do in our hearts, if we let it. See, Christians are called to be faithful to God, to share God's love and good news with deep compassion. Think about Paul for a second. You know that Paul lost his life telling people about Jesus? Wasn't he concerned about his safety? Apparently, he was more concerned about obedience to God and God's mission. But wasn't he concerned about the communities that he was leaving behind, the churches he planted? Here's how Leon Morris puts it. And he's writing this. This is like 40 years ago, this commentary. But listen how relevant it is for us today. These Thessalonians to whom these words were addressed were themselves in no easy situation. Subject to constant harassment from both Jew and Gentile, it would have been easy for them to become embittered. But it was just in this situation that they were being called upon to render to no man evil for evil. Right here in our passage, Paul is telling this fledgling church to do what? Be like Jesus. Don't retaliate. Keep doing them good even though they're hurting you. They were not to let the harm that they received. And some scholars have actually suggested this might have included death and martyrdom in the community. Not sure if that's true, but there's a suggestion there. They are not to let that harm embitter them or stop them from doing good to those who harm I mean, that's just reflective of the Jesus' words in Matthew 5, right? Do good to those who harm you. Um, love your enemies, Jesus says. We're called to do the same thing. Now, I'm not suggesting that we don't care about the vetting process. Of course, we could care about that. But that's a safety question, and that's a government question. That's the question our government has to answer. So we must pray for our government, if that's something that concerns you, that they would have wisdom in doing their part. But as Christians, we have to ask a different set of questions. David Crabb, in his excellent article on, in the Desiring God webpage, he says this, um, our question isn't what about our safety. I actually can't find that verse anywhere in the Bible. Show me if it's there. I can't find it. We're never asked to ask that question. What about our safety is not our question. What does God care about? And what is God up to? Those are Christian questions. Certainly God cares about the injustice and violence that's done to humanity all over the world, regardless of the background of the people it's done to And God calls us not only to care, but to do something. Love your neighbor as yourself, Jesus says. Do for others what you would want them to do for you. Yes, indeed. And that is regardless of who our neighbor might be. Our text doesn't say that we strive to do good to everyone else if they happen to believe what we do. Paul says the opposite. We care for each other, that's within the church, and everyone else means everyone who is lost who don't yet know that they're so loved by God. So our job is to let others experience that love through our work and our words. Again, David Crabb invites us to ask, and this is a brilliant question, what would our perspective on the refugee crisis be if the Bible, not our favorite news channel, was guiding our thoughts and directing our behavior? That's an important question. Here's what I would suggest. Every hour that you want to watch the news about this issue, you spend in the text. Good? It's not turn off the TV and just read the Bible. No, keep the TV on. But for every hour you watch the news, spend an hour looking at what the Bible says about how to care for the refugees, the foreigners, the alien among you, the poor, the widow, those who are fleeing violence. Let's read the text. Let's get into the story of God and see how that shapes our thinking. Let's let the Bible shape how we think and act on this matter. Um, Almost a thousand years ago, the great Christian theologian Thomas Aquinas, he wrote how fear works. On like matters, he writes, this applies to those who are in great fear, for they are so intent on their own passion, meaning their own suffering, that they pay no attention to the suffering of others. Thomas is saying, in essence, when we focus on our own fear, it makes us so self-centered we can pay no attention to the suffering of others. We must not let fear make us self-centered and so drive compassion out of our hearts. That's a real danger, actually. And just the amount, I know there's a lot of talk on not only, you know, the media, but on social media about this. It could be polarizing. We don't want this kind of thing to be polarizing in our midst. We just simply want to go to the God of all comfort, the God of, who gives us his security and, and look to him. The second question we need to ask is this. What is God up to? Um, think of it. There are 18 unreached people groups in Syria. Unreached meaning they have no access to hearing the gospel of Jesus yet. And Christian missionaries have been trying to penetrate into Syria in a very difficult situation. Learn the language, enter the culture, somehow figure out a way to share good news with unreached people groups. And now, could it be that God has a purpose in all this scattering, that there would be Christian churches and Christian people who would welcome others into their midst, who would have otherwise had no opportunity to hear of the love of Jesus? Could God be up to something like that? I think so. The question is, are we going to be perceptive to that? Now, at this point, we haven't decided where that refugee family is coming from. There's actually refugees all over the world that have been waiting to come for years. Um, we don't know yet if they'll be Muslim or, or Christians or from other religion, but regardless, our call is to love and serve, to demonstrate Jesus through our, our words and our work. But it's up to us to make the most of that opportunity. So that's our question. I think Trevor Wax, Trevin Wax gives us food for thought on this. He says, when future generations look back in time, let us hope they will see that we met these challenges of the refugee crisis he's writing about with courage, not fear. In doing so, we obey the most frequent command in the Bible, do not be afraid. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. And uh, as they do, I just want to conclude saying, you know, Paul in this passage is concerned to see how God is going to shape his church. Yes, he uses the leadership to do that. But he does it through all of us working together to pattern our lives after Jesus' own life. How does Jesus love? By fearlessly giving of himself. Will you and I, the question is, be so shaped by the gospel, will it be driven so deep in our hearts that we become that community of hope? We will. Because God, through his spirit, is at work among us. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for your work in the world. We thank you that you call us to be a part of it, to be a part of your your compassionate heart for others. We thank you for the words we saw this morning that call us to be a community of hope. We trust you, God, to change us, to form us, to transform us into a people who fearlessly love for your sake. In Christ's name we pray, amen.